So there's an expression, wherever you go, there you are. <clears throat> and I think that's an interesting reflection on a nature retreat. <clears throat> in that wherever we go, in this case to a beautiful mountain in New Mexico, we drag ourselves along <laughs> and our mind and our heart and our history and our habits and tendencies and stuff. And we never think about that when we book the retreat or we book the vacation. Right? We go to Hawaii, we go down the Grand Canyon, we, wherever it is that you like to go. We forget that we, the, we have this backpack, backpack of me on <laughs> that follows us around as much as we would like to take a vacation from ourselves. <laughs> so I'm almost always surprised, even though I shouldn't be after. 15 years of teaching this stuff that when I'm conceiving of the retreat the nature retreat, the place the landscape, all that I'm also oriented to the nature component more than the meditation component and more than the stuff that arises in the meditation component <laughs> and um two things I see primarily arise. One is all the stuff that goes into and is connected to mind training, because to be here for a week in silence in a meditative way means we come up against all the ways the mind is untrained and therefore problematic and challenging. And then the second piece is all of the more difficult states, moods, emotions that arise in the space. I think I spoke to that either in the group or in the small group the other day that, you know, last night, you know, when we create that space from our lives and from stimulation and from conversation, then we start to feel at times deeper swells, deeper layers, deeper unresolved emotions, conflicts, fears, existential mm, challenges, um, confrontations with our mortality, or the reverberation of losses, um, you know, and a whole host of human stuff. And because we're not distracted here, then we get to really feel it, or face it, or, or work with it. Or we do our best to try and continue avoiding it, stuffing it, getting busy, however we get busy on retreats. 
you know, we repack and unpack our bags and rearrange <laughs> our room and move the furniture around and, you know, <laughs> go on a, a botany exercise and we're classifying the plants. So, you know, we, get, we, we can find a way to get busy and get distracted. Or we think a lot, we start planning some great novel or some great project. And we also often think that when that stuff arises, that it's either a problem or something's wrong that that's happening. So we add an extra layer. We add many layers, but that's one layer. Oh no, this is going to ruin my retreat. This is going to get in the way of something. Nobody else is having this. Everybody else looks happy. Everybody's, you know, tiptoeing through the daisies. And I'm the only one who's struggling and sad or lonely or afraid or doubting or... So my definition of dukkha is it's hard to be human. It's hard to be conscious with the mind and body and heart that we have. It's also very beautiful and rich and deep and ecstatic and and it's also hard and painful and challenging, even in beautiful places, even when the conditions are mostly supportive because we carry enough of our burden around, our existential dilemmas. This is from uh, Catholic Archbishop written some centuries ago. As light increases, so the light is a metaphor for awareness in meditation. As light increases, we see ourselves to be worse than we thought. We are amazed at our former blindness as we see issuing forth from the depths of our heart a whole swarm of shameful feelings and like filthy reptiles. Don't go that far, but anyhow. We never could have harbored, we never could have believed that we had harbored such things and we stand aghast as we watch them appear. But we must neither be amazed nor disheartened. We are not worse than we were. On the contrary, we are better. While our faults diminish, the light by which we see them waxes brighter. Bear in mind, for your comfort, we perceive our malady. We only perceive our malady when the cure begins. So this is the path of awareness. We become more aware. We start seeing a whole bunch of stuff (laughs) that we never had any awareness of. That we can feel ashamed by or embarrassed or burdened or overwhelmed or sad or guilty. All kinds of 
second day, what the Buddha called the second arrow. Maybe we have, maybe we see our patterns of narcissism, our self-centered behavior. We all have, um, uh, we all have dimensions of narcissism. If we have any ego identification. And that's painful enough to feel that self-centered contraction. And then the second layer is, oh my God, I'm a Buddhist and I'm a meditator and I've been doing all this awareness practice and I'm so, my God, I'm supposed to be letting go of the self and I'm so narcissistic. And we add that shaming layer. And the shaming layer of the critic inhibits inquiry, inhibits investigation inhibits compassion. So when we see these painful layers like narcissism, for example, if we can drop the judgment, we can perhaps attune to the painful layer, the painful aspect of it. The way our mind is perpetually planning, anticipating, and trying to make our life okay and safe. It has its function, its place. And when it's out of control, there's a lot of suffering. That's just the way the survival mechanism, circuitry works. And when it's unbridled, gets obsessive and completely self-consumed and painful in that regard and definitely painful for the people around us. So, you know, an integral part of Dharma practice is confronting dukkha, confronting the various challenges of being human. What the Buddha talked about, not getting what we want, getting what we don't want, losing what we have, being separated from that which we love, aging, sickness, dying, and all fill in the blanks of everything in between. And our task is to understand that dimension of our experience, to hold it with awareness, with kindness, with understanding, so we can free, we can be free from from it. But it requires a particular orientation to be with it which is what we are training ourselves in. How we meet the difficult circumstances of our life, internally, externally, small and large. And normally what we try to do is run away, avoid, suppress, distract, 
check out, think. We have many, many strategies, right? Our culture is very kind in offering us innumerable strategies for not being with ourselves. Ajahn Chah says, by running away from suffering, we run towards it. Ever notice that? You run far away and suddenly it smacks you in the face. You run away from the pain of relationship and then you in a new relationship and oh, there it is. The same dynamics, the same patterns, different characters, same play. So we practice here, we practice in our sitting, we practice cultivating this kind awareness as a support for meeting that which is challenging. This is from Suzuki Roshi. He says, you don't really know what it means to sit in meditation until there is some great difficulty in your life. Not until something happens like the grave illness of someone you love and then you're tearing your hair out and pacing back and forth in the corridor of the hospital and there's nothing you can do. And finally you take a seat in the midst of your fears and sorrows and thoughts and worries and you just sit in the middle of it all. And that's the moment you begin to understand the power of your practice. Anybody know that experience? We're up against some really difficult, painful, tragic experience. And, and life forces us to dig deep, to really summon the depths of our resources, our practice, our capacity. So I'm thinking about Seth as he's on his way home to be with his family and his dying father. He left early this morning. And I know that the, his practice is a ballast for helping deal with that. It's not the only thing, but similar situation. So it comes down to our attitude, to our relationship, to how we hold and meet and be with these human experiences. And we get tested every day how we deal with adversity, small and large. Mostly here the adversity is small, but there's always adversity, there's always something. As Joseph Goldstein said, if it's not one thing, it's another. If it's not too cold, it's too hot. If it's not ants, it's mosquitoes. <laughs> if it's not your knee, it's your back. <laughs> you know, and on it goes. So how do you meet and turn towards, not away from, that which is difficult? 
you know, been stressing, as I do on nature retreats, turning towards that which is beautiful, that which is joyful, that which is heart-opening, wonderful ballast and support for the other side of practice of turning towards that which is hard. And I think what distinguishes Dharma practice is the encouragement to turn towards the difficult. To open to and understand the particularity of the circumstance of the challenge. It's a very counterintuitive stance. Who wants to be with pain? I hear that a lot especially from people new to retreat. Why would I want to be with my knee pain? Why would I want to feel sadness? Why didn't I just go have a good time? (laughs) Good luck. (laughs) So this is a poem I wrote some years ago about what I call the turn. Your only duty is not to run from here, from this, Even if the hole of loss burns deep in your belly and on waking you feel the dread of walking into the day, exposed. You could pretend try putting on a face other than your own, but that's a game that never works and only burns a deeper hole inside the pocket of longing, making the shell you've chosen to live in even more hollow. But there are times when there is no choice but to surrender, to turn towards the loneliness and the empty places within you've spent a lifetime running from, embracing them with delicate hands of love, the way the evening fog envelops the solitary tree without flinching, pressing into and loving every gnarled crevice, every twisted branch, even the forgotten needles fallen to the ground. This is the first step that begins this journey of completeness, keeps inviting you deeper into the roots of yourself, claiming your place that has been waiting, that is always right here. So in meditation we get to... Look at that very microscopically. In the whole array of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral experience, which is constantly ebbing and flowing, we get to see how we meet or turn towards or away. The knee pain, the heartache, the mind tripping, the story making the existential angst or lack or the sense of deficiency or loneliness. And it's why, as I was mentioning yesterday, you know, the this integration of kindness and mindfulness is really key. Without love without that compassionate quality 
to be with our suffering is much more difficult. When there's love or softening or surrender or acceptance or kindness, there's a certain capacity to yield, to hold, to surrender into, to soften around. I went through an anxiety wave a few years ago, triggered by some early memories and um, triggered by an event. I was in this very isolated place and it just brought up and also some things that were happening in my life brought up a very deep layer of anxiety. And um, you know, when you encounter those inner experiences that you can't meditate away, you can't distract away, you can't avoid, and it demands that we dig deeper into our resources, right? And we all have our version of that. Maybe it's loneliness for you, maybe it's fear, maybe it's rage. And, uh, and this went on for some months, and every day I'd work, wake up with that frozen, gripped, solar plexus clenching, wired anxiety and sometimes terror. And it was clear there was no running away from it. There was no fixing it. There was simple, all I could do was bring, soften, bring a kind, yielding, surrendered quality to that very triggered nervous system, bringing a loving, softening presence, relaxing the the body and the tissue, and and over time it it receded. Um, A little longer than I wanted it to, (laughs) a little slower than it was. But it's interesting when we hit those places that don't go away. Come on in permanence, do your job. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes they last for a long time. I remember when I first started meditating, I I would drop below the layer, um, below the surface layer, I was always a layer of sadness. Just for years, it persisted. And I think it persisted because persisted I kept it at arm's length. I never really wanted to let it in, to, to let in what was underneath the sadness. <coughs> this is from Jennifer Wellwood. Opening to my loss. Oh, this is wrong. Um, (laughs) willing to experience aloneness I discover connection everywhere turning to face my fear I meet the warrior who lives within opening to my loss I gain the embrace of the universe surrendering into emptiness I find fullness without end Each condition I flee from pursues me. 
Each condition I welcome transforms me and becomes itself transformed. It's a very beautiful synopsis of what I'm speaking to. Each condition I flee from pursues me. Each condition I welcome transforms me and becomes itself transformed. So, are we fleeing or are we welcoming? What can we welcome and what do we flee from? What's required to turn towards that which we flee from? Sometimes we need the physical presence of another person to be with something that's too difficult in us, something traumatic, something that feels overwhelming. Sometimes we need to be really resourced, we need to be earthed and grounded, we need to be in a beautiful place that feels safe in order to touch some of the more tender, wounded places inside. So each of us needs different things at different times to hold the harder places. Sometimes we have too much going in our lives, we're already overwhelmed, and we, we don't have the capacity to open to and fully let in some layers of our experience. Victor Franco wrote, it's not the load that weighs, weighs us down, but how we carry it. It's not the load that weighs us down, but how we carry it. So we all carry a certain load, some more than others. What's your relationship to the load, to the burden? What stories do we make up around the load? This is impossible, it's never going to go away, this is not fair, I'm the only one, this is someone else's fault, who can I blame? It's a great uh, little video vignette from the psychologist Brene Brown who's talking about blame. You can get it on YouTube. You should check it out. It's very funny. And she's giving a very simple example of she's in the, in the kitchen in the morning and um, she's making a coffee and uh, for whatever reason that she's pulling the coffee cup out of the machine, it spills all over her work outfit the day and the first thought comes up is damn it Steve it's your fault a husband <laughs> who's sleeping in his bed <laughs> and the story is that she'd asked her husband to come home early from his game that last night but he was delayed she got home later so she felt like she was kept up late so she went to bed late, so she was tired in the morning, so she was making coffee because of that, and it was his fault. <laughs> and she called him right away at work. 
guess what just happened? And he knew exactly what was going to happen. <laughs> and he hung up the phone. <laughs> and then she got what she was doing. So one of the ways that we choose or not choose, react to not holding our pain is we look for uh, someone to blame. Yeah. Parents, partner, you know, whoever the closest person <laughs> to vent the negativity that we can't tolerate the feelings inside. And of course, there's many times when we're sitting or wherever we are and the pain arises is really intense and it's too much for us to hold. And the criteria for being too much to hold is that it overwhelms our present time awareness so we get flooded. There's a sense of being slightly re-traumatized if it's got trauma layer in it. And so it's important to know how and when to work with strong waves. It's always important to be grounded, to be resourced. Resource being that which allows us to know, to feel that sense of being rooted in the present moment, not being lost in the wave. So we're grounded in the present mindful and feeling the wave of pain and still being here. So the body can be very grounding, eyes, seeing, sounds, people, moving the body, many different ways to resource if the waves are too strong. Nature is a fantastic resource because it gives us a sense of container and spaciousness into which to hold difficult feelings. I remember being on a three-month retreat and I was in the middle, I was just on my way to becoming a monk and, uh, and some very early trauma came up, completely flattened me, knocked me sideways, I couldn't practice and uh, my only refuge was hiking in the woods at uh, Barry at Insight Meditation Society uh, in the snow and that was one way I could find enough ground and uh, resource to be able to tolerate some of the waves that came through. So it's important to know what resources us, what grounds us, so we can hold the waves. is the transformative quality of our struggle. As I was saying to somebody in a group yesterday that some retreats we go on, they're just pure dukkha retreats. They're just miserable. Even out here, you know, because we're dealing with some torments, demons, whatever it is from our lives. And we're just, you know, in dukkha lands. We're suffering, we're upset, we're struggling. 
And yet, when we look back at those retreats, they're often the retreats and the times that have been most transformational. Look back at the times that you've, the hardest times you've been through, and it's the times that we grow often the most. Not always, but often. This is from the poet Hafez. He says, Don't surrender your loneliness so quickly. Let it cut more deep. Let it ferment and season you as few or even divine ingredients can. Something missing in my heart tonight has made my eyes so soft, my voice so tender, my need of the divine absolutely clear. Don't surrender your loneliness so quickly. Which means to really allow, to, to gestate in that. Not to wallow in it, because that's not helpful. Not to indulge it, that's not helpful. But to make room when it's here. And that phrase that I mentioned that Achen Samedo uses, like this. Oh, sadness is like this. Sorrow is like this. Feeling like I don't fit in is like this. Feeling so bored I want to die is like this. That, that phrase is welcoming and a meeting and a non-interfering. Here it is. Bird song is like this. So I'll read this last little story, which is kind of a more amusing way of looking at it. Um, and what it's speaking to is the need for patience. One of the, I think, the greatest hindrances for our inner work is our impatience with the process. We all want it to resolve quicker than it does. How... You know, when we're grieving, it's very easy to be impatient with the grieving process. You know, we go through diff- long waves and we think we're done, and then two months later, another wave comes, and we get impatient with ourselves or with the process. It doesn't help. It's another arrow, second arrow. So, this is a story that I read often, that always makes me chuckle. Um, So it's called Two More Aisles. A man observes a woman in the grocery store with a three-year-old girl in her shopping cart. As they pass the cookie section, the little girl asks for cookies and her mother tells her no. And of course, the little girl begins to whine and fuss a little bit. And the mother says, now, Monica, we just have half of the aisles left to go through don't be upset won't be long soon they come to the candy aisle and again the little girl begins to shout for candy when told she can't have any she begins to cry and the mother says there there monica don't cry only two more aisles to go then we'll be checking out 
when they get out when they get to the checkout stand the little girl immediately begins to clamor for gum and burns into a terrible tantrum when no gum is purchased the mother patiently says monica will be through this checkout stand in five minutes then you can go home and take a nice nap the man follows them out to the parking lot and stops the woman to compliment her I couldn't help noticing how patient you were with little Monica, he began. Whereupon the mother says, what do you mean? My little girl's name is Tammy. I'm Monica. <laughs> well, the mothers in the room particularly will appreciate that story and the fathers. So we're the ones that need consoling. <laughs> They're there. So only 20 more minutes of the meditation <laughs> and then you can go lie down in the sun. <laughs> there, there, it's soon to be lunchtime and then we'll take a nice nap. And <laughs> so we want to bring that very kind, gentle, loving spirit to ourselves, to our difficulties. Why? Because it makes it so much easier. It doesn't nothing gets rid of the thing itself but the attitude is half the work really maybe even more than half because once we can access that that loving spacious allowing and we're taking refuge in that capacity then it's it's less important what's coming and going. Yeah, of course, there's painful waves that come and go in that, but there's something deeper to have refuge in. Yeah. To have refuge in love, to have refuge in awareness, and that capacity that they bring, that's a reliable refuge. to look for a time or a place when that stuff's not happening, that's not a refuge. It's a hope. <laughs> it's a natural wish, but it's not a refuge. So may we all deepen in our capacity for a loving awareness to hold the ups and downs of our experience of life. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.